Welcome to episode 270 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was uploaded on 21st of March 2021. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the Spokesmen. In the last show, I talked with author and child's play expert Tim Gill. I'm Carlton Reed, and on today's hour-long episode, I'm continuing the Child's Play theme as I talk with academics and campaigners Alison Stenning and Sally Watson. Now, it just so happens both live close to me in Newcastle, but while we talk about the northeast of England, the main theme is universal, and that's designing our streets so children can get about under their own steam. So on today's show, uh, the previous show, uh, hopefully you've listened to, was with uh, Tim Gill, who's a, a play expert. And I've now got other play experts on here, uh, but from a different uh, a different angle. And I did preview them in, in, in the previous show. Uh, so I'd like to uh, uh, welcome to the show Sally Watson. Hi, Sally. Hi. Hi, Carlton. And Alison Stenning. Hello. Now, you're both incredibly local to me. So it's like it's crazy that we're even doing this uh, over over uh, in effect Skype because, you know, I could go and, and, and meet you at any time. I mean, Alison, you're about five miles from me. Sally, you're probably less than two. So welcome to a very, very local episode of, a, of an international show. Uh, first of all, I'd like to come to, to well, I'd like to come to both of you and ask about your current work because that's why I've, I've got you on. So let's 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 go to Alison first. Alison, tell us about uh, the work you've been doing uh, on play streets in the northeast, but what that also says about play streets and and play in general for the whole of the UK. Okay, so I mean, I have two hats on here and I'll predominantly talk about kind of my first hat which is I suppose my academic hat and I've been researching play streets and particularly focusing on the playing out movement which was launched um, just over 10 years ago originally in Bristol and I've been trying to explore what it, what happens on streets when people play on them effectively so what what does it do to a street what does it do to the life of the street how does it change residents experience of their street if they get a chance to play on it, both adults and children. And I was due to be researching that over the last year, year and a half, to really be focusing on that. And clearly things have changed in the last year, year and a half. So I haven't been able to do that in quite the way I wanted. I've picked up that research in different ways. I've tried to do it in different ways at a distance um, and looking at kind of previous historical periods as well as the contemporary period. But I've also then been able to pick up some stuff around what's been happening um, in terms of playfulness on streets uh, during the pandemic, we all saw kind of a, a big kind of outburst of play during the first lockdown in particular. So I've been trying to kind of use that as a way of kind of opening up debates about what else might happen on streets, how else might we enable play 
to happen on streets and what might that do? See, I was just assuming, you know, that this is for children, but you've said adults as well. So what do you mean adults playing on streets? Well, what we find, I mean, the playing out model is a very particular model um, which closes streets temporarily for play, usually on a monthly basis, sometimes weekly and fortnightly. And it's very much a child led kind of model. You know, we don't organise games for children, but we do assume that parents will be around and responsible for their children and for maintaining safety on the street. So what often happens is that whilst the children are playing and running up and down and the adults are trying to kind of stand back whilst the kids play and get on with whatever else they want to do, we see adults just hanging out, chatting, laughing, getting to know each other. You know, adults don't often play in the same ways that children do, but that kind of playful space and the kind of playful atmosphere that's created on the street when a bunch of kids are playing on it can be very kind of liberating and very kind of um, positive, I guess, in terms of, you know, the sorts of potential connections and relationships that can be made between adults as well. And we do, of course, we see adults getting involved too. You know, we see adults chalking, we see adults playing football, we see adults getting involved in some of the children's play too. You talked about connections. Is it is it Apple Yard? Is that the study? A famous study? I think it's, is it New York? I'm, I'm, I'm trying to remember here what this study is, but it's basically a study which shows that you know, with, with lines across the road, you know, uh, the proximity people or uh, the, 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 how they'll cross the road is very different when there's a bunch of cars around compared to when there's not a bunch of cars around. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, that's sort of the density and the kind of the, the number of cars flowing down a street. And obviously what happens on a, on a, a street play, closed for play is that there are, well, residents can drive to their, their front doors of if we allow them to, but generally there's no traffic. So people can cross the street, people can move up and down the street. But often what we've seen is that for the first time when streets close for play, people realise quite how many children there are living on the street and they meet neighbours that they've, you know, maybe seen at a distance but never spoken to. And we've had numerous examples of that. An example on a street in Whitley Bay, for example, where after their first play street session, there were people in their 70s who'd lived on the street for over 30 years meeting neighbours for the first time. Wow. And and Sally, welcome to the show. Um, Sally, tell us a bit about uh, your academic credentials at the moment, the kind of study that you're doing. And and because you are you're, you, you, you come on to um, the, the, the video show ideas uh, with beers where you discuss this. Uh, so tell us a bit about uh, uh, what you're doing in this in this realm. Yeah, so I'm a, a postgraduate researcher at Newcastle University, and my background is in architecture and planning. And I'm really interested in the decisions that, that are made about how we design our cities that, that afford children, you know, more or less freedom to play and, and to move around. And, and for me, the mobility and play are, are very much intertwined. And so I started out sort of looking at um, that we have this story about loss and decline of play. Um, over the over the course of the second half of the 20th century and actually it's sort of a bit more lumpy than that and there are moments where um, we are trying to with the efforts are made to to design better environments for children uh, but not that aren't just playgrounds it's you know it is actually streets and and but but these are moments and also these this kind of increase in, in motor traffic and car traffic and parking that we see isn't doesn't isn't something that just happens you know um, smoothly it is contested and so I was quite interested in looking at the point in in the 1970s where where many new housing estates were designed which separated children's sort of pedestrian play 
um, space from from car design space and how these become quite stigmatized for many reasons, including probably predominantly political reasons in the the 80s and 90s and and how um, but how actually there was also sort of a retrofitting of streets and what ha- what happened in those places what you know who who wanted this to happen who didn't want this to happen why does it end uh, and and it seems that there's a, a point there where we we could have sort of really made you know we were really interested as as a country sort of in the UK and, and other places you know developed differently but we were quite interested in tackling this issue of, of 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 enabling children to play on on streets. It's just something that that we, I think, you know, there is a there's a movement to to push for this now, but it is it's still quite a small voice, you know, kind of wanting change. So, what hope do you see for the future? Because it, it's often said that touching for a politician, for instance, to touch car parking, it's like touching the third rail. You know, it, it's something you just you just don't do if you ever want to succeed in in politics. So, given that's the case, what what do you think is the future for your particular um, research, and 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 whether it could be changed in the real world? Yeah, well, I think actually, actually, parking is something that it is we don't talk about enough. We talk a lot about um, kind of movements of traffic and how that's sort of dangerous and deters children. But um, parking, you know, at this point that I'm looking at in the 60s, 70s, parking and children are literally, you know, on the same page when policy is being written about, you know, there is this idea that you can have it all, that we can provide parking and we can also make space for children. Uh, And this idea that you can have these huge sort of um, kind of, you know, all main roads become really quite urban motorways and and then residential streets all become sort of kind of a rad burn. Is this trying to kind of have your cake and eat it really? It's not really tackling the issue of, of how you kind of ensure that people are able to travel in other ways other than other than um, using private cars. So sort of to go a long way around to answer that question, I think um, one of the things that if we are really serious about it, making it safer and easier and more acceptable for children to play on the street we do have to tackle you know the amount of driving uh, and the way we do that is through making streets safer for walking for cycling but also we do really need to improve public transport we need to think about planning where we're planning new housing all of these things it's not an easy thing to fix Sally did you say Radburn there so like the cul-de-sac movement 1920s is that what you meant yeah yeah Radburn is, is a kind of is a, it, it seems to mean many things to many people. It's it it it's it can be something that's very high density. It can be as we now think of it as being sort of huge sprawl and cul-de-sacs. Um, the original intention was that there were more connect. There was more connectivity uh, for walking than than actually we often get in some of the some sort of the more eighties nineties sort of American style cul-de-sac estates. It's not necessarily the solution. That's not what I'm proposing. It's just that at this time, when, when in the 60s and 70s, when we were designing Radburn or or something like it uh, quite widely, um, that was one of that was kind of the, one of the main aims was to make safe space for children in housing areas. So, Alison, I've seen some of your your tweets where you're discussing. I mean, if, if Sally's talking about the 70s, there where you've discussed previous um, eras where play streets were were uh, being created play streets were then being uncreated so so can you give us a bit of the history of 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 play streets in the uk yeah i mean this is some very much something that kind of sally and i have been working on in 
parallel through kind of WhatsApp conversations late at night as we've rediscovered the history of play streets in, in, in the northeast, particularly in, in Newcastle and or what was then Tynemouth Borough Council. So in 1938, the Street Playgrounds Act um, enabled local authorities to close streets for play. Um, Sally can add to this story for sure. But it was largely driven by um, the absence of, of play spaces in particular neighbourhoods. So these were often um, poorer, more disadvantaged neighbourhoods. They were some quite regularly through the 1940s and 50s and beyond ones that were at risk of redevelopment as well. But they tended to be places with high populations of children, um, but with very few um, safe spaces for play. And there was, I guess, already the kind of rising concern that numbers of motor vehicles were increasing on residential streets, often not private vehicles, but delivery vehicles, milk vans, coal lorries, that kind of thing. Um, and that they were threatening children, that children were increasingly at risk on the play spaces that had been historically um, kind of their ordinary everyday spaces for play, just on their doorsteps, um, in their back lanes, on their streets, around the corners. Um, so the 1938 Street Playgrounds Act um, set out to enable local authorities to restrict traffic on those streets for certain times of the day. It was usually 8am to sunset or sunrise to sunset um, when the streets were first um, established. The, this arose from a movement um, that had started in Salford, um, learning from experience in New York prior to that. There have been streets in London that had tried this before the 1938 Act. But after the 1938 Act, we saw a number of local authorities picking this up. And in fact, Tynemouth Borough Council was one of the first um, to pick it up. Um, it was certainly the first in the northeast to pick it up, um, originally rejecting the idea um, but quite quickly, within about um, so four or five years of um, of the act being passed, Tynemouth Borough Council were identifying streets to designate as play streets, and those were almost all in North Shields, um, and almost all in parts of North Shields that kind of, I guess, overlook the Tyne, overlook the shipyards, um, as it was then. So um, Tyneside Flats, narrow streets with terraced housing, and um, very little green space, very little open space. Um, most of this happened then just after the war. So there were some bomb plots that had been turned into impromptu playgrounds, but there wasn't a lot of space for play. So these were the ones that were designated. So Sally, where have they gone? Where did they go? Well, some of them are still there. Actually, we have found lists in, in both in Newcastle and in North Tyneside of, of some of places which are still there. Many of them um, have been demolished because they then went on to be um, they were well they were they were probably already down as being slum clearance areas, and and then some of them you know many of them later on the the traf- there is just too much traffic so we still have quite a few in Heaton but um, you know the, the demographics of people who are living in those houses change for various reasons related again sort of to housing housing policy. Um, and also there is just too much traffic. So just the sign on its own isn't enough. I think what it's it's made me think a lot about the work that Alison does in North Tyneside and that, you know, the play street, just closing the street in and of itself isn't necessarily enough. And that there is also this this kind of really important role, perhaps even if you, you know, even if you live on a dead end street, perhaps there is this also this important role of community organising for play that that actually brings something something else other than just the physical infrastructure we're talking about play here and this is a question to both of you i guess um uh, uh, but it's not just about you know getting out there playing hopscotch doing all these fantastic things chalking on the road it's also about mobility and children uh, having 
the ability to actually move about the places where they live. For, you know, forget play. It's just how to physically get from your house to school to see your friends or whatever. So, Alison, how does how does that uh, aspect fit in? Actually, getting people to 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 use their own form of transport without relying on parental taxis. Well, I think, I mean, you know, the playing out movement would very much see themselves as part of this. And I think um, often this debate within the playing out movement rests on our idea um, of Tim Gills, that, that the street is the first step in independent mobility, that if a child feels at home on their own street and feels like they can move around their own street safely, whether that's because they've learned how to manage traffic and just to be aware of traffic and to feel that the street is theirs and that they have a right to walk up and down it, then that can lead and build towards a much greater sense of independent mobility. And we also have a lot of evidence, for example, of children learning to ride their bikes on streets that are closed for play. So there is this kind of sense in which giving children the space, but also a sense that this is their street and they belong on it, then that that can build um, and create kind of other spaces and extended journeys that we all started, you know, developing our kind of spatial mobility and our independent mobility from our doorsteps. Um, But that's been increasingly kind of restricted over the years. And I think there's this sense in which if you if you give children space to play, if you give children space to explore, if you give children space to connect to their streets, um, then they're more, um, I guess, they're keener to kind of extend um, their roaming distance beyond the street. But then obviously you come up against the barriers to that, which we keep coming back to the question of traffic and cars. Um, And I think, you know, things like school streets, for example, connect to these debates, um, creating what is effectively a play street outside a school, which not only changes the atmosphere outside the school, but also um, for many will start to be a part of the jigsaw in a safe journey to school. Um, And we hope, I suppose, that, you know, by giving some children the space to see what is possible without cars and what's opened up when we reduce the number of cars um, on a street or moving down a street, that there's also a a kind of cultural change. Um, And I think, you know, this sense in which there's a kind of, um, there's a numbers game, I guess, going on that, you know, I mean, play workers often say that kind of the child's favourite loose part is another child, that what they want to play with is another child more than anything. And I think that's also true for questions of kind of independent mobility. It's much easier for children, if they've met each other, hanging out on the street, playing together on the street, to move around and beyond the street together. Um, So there's a sense that if more children are out on the streets, if more children are feeling confident on the streets, then that will generate, I guess, um, shifts in parenting, shifts in parenting cultures, which have to go alongside the reduction of cars and car traffic. Yeah, with with it, with uh, Tim, I didn't talk to him about like stranger danger. So you know that's one component. It's not just traffic danger; people are often afraid of it. Stranger danger too. Uh, but Sally, I'd like to um, come to you and, and ask about because I don't I don't hyper localize it too much because this is this isn't a Jesmond um, show. But y- you had issues with a school in Jesmond um, being able to basically get your kids to to school. In, in safety. Yeah, I suppose, I mean, just going back to what Alison was saying about the street, and, and I think just going back to mobility, I think we can think, tend to think in very adult terms about mobility. And you think about what's a toddler's mobility. Well, it, you know, we know that very young children much prefer to, to play very close to their homes. We think about that, you know, that child knocking on a neighbor's door two years old, that is mobility. But equally, that child moving around that street and playing 
you know that's that's partly you know, that is also mobility for them and you know and equally then to then talk about the school run a bit I think you know mobility is is not we talk a lot about independent mobility but actually children are also travel or move with with family with friends and we need to sort of think a bit more widely about about that so you know the the, the our school run is is probably many people would think is not too bad until the point that you get to school and that environment outside school is is kind of what I would just call traffic chaos and um and you come up against you know many other people trying to use that street for many different purposes and I think this is go then you know it goes back to that the street what 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 is the purpose of that street at that time of day and whose movement movement should it be facilitating um, and really, you know, given you have a huge number of children trying to travel th- through there, it, and it isn't again. I, I think it isn't just about travel, as Alison said. The, this idea of school streets, you know, the atmosphere of arriving at a school where there is no traffic right outside, kind of completely, I think, transforms the experience for, for for those children arriving at school and those families. So, Sally, if you were the Newcastle Transport Planner, how would you change that particular street, and how would that link into maybe? other streets, other schools, elsewhere in the UK, perhaps even elsewhere in the world? Well, I think, I mean, and, and I think actually others have started to talk more about secondary as well, but I think there, there are differences between primary schools and secondary schools. There are differences, you know, in the types of streets that, that schools are on. I think schools um, that aren't on, aren't on a kind of main road, really serious main road, bus route, whatever, um, there's there isn't really any reason why you can't create an, a, a school street or even a network of streets um, that are access only at, at school drop off and pick up times. Um, these are just decisions that you know that we as adults, you know, and, and, and adults in positions of power can make. And yeah, they are they can be controversial, but I think if framed in the right way, um, and I think that they are sort of broadly acceptable probably to most people. Uh, and but then you have a different issue when it comes to older children traveling to school. There's some recent research that that's sort of actually in in Newcastle talking to children about about their worries about pandemic. And one of the things that come out of that is is how they feel using public transport. And so sort of again thinking about mobility, you know, older children might be walking, might be cycling, might be using public transport to get around the city. Um, and we're not really kind of thinking about any of our transport planning with their needs in mind. So it's sort of a, you know, it's, it's a bigger thing than the street, but it does definitely kind of start with those those streets. Alison, uh, uh, Sally mentioned the pandemic there. Um, do you think, I, I don't want to touch on the Sunrise Cycleway just yet. I, I want to kind of leave that for, for a moment. Um, but do you think uh, what's happened during the pandemic, either... Uh, organically from just people being you know in effect close to home or from the government's point of view where they've they've actually done stuff or tried to do stuff to to uh, increase uh, uh, active mobility um do you think the pandemic will lead to um societal changes in the long term I suppose that's a kind of million dollar question, isn't it? And I think, you know, I think lots of us who were kind of very um, excited by what we'd seen, as you say, both happening in an organic manner um, during the first lockdown, but also um, the announcement of the active travel funds um, last year, were quite excited that this might mark a shift, both in terms of people's experience of their streets and what they hoped for on their streets, um, but also governmental and local governmental responses. Um, I suppose I'm increasingly 
less positive about what's been achieved and what might be maintained. Um, and I think, you know, we need to look back at kind of some of the bigger structural issues around, you know, cars and car parking and those different kinds of mobility. And as Sally suggested, the alternative forms of mobility, which might which might kind of take up some of the slack, particularly kind of public transport. I think, you know, people did enjoy and recognise the value of low traffic streets, which is what we effectively had in the first lockdown. And that wasn't true for everyone. People were still having to travel for work. And there was, you know, some essential travel going on. But I think for the most part, in most parts of the UK, we saw a, a dramatic decline in in traffic. We did also see an increase in speeding. Um, and that's an interesting connection to think about in terms of making streets safe for children, but for others too. I think, you know, all of the debates that we've seen about low traffic neighbours, particularly in London, the controversies there, but also the controversies clearly in, in Newcastle, you know, suggest that there's still a very big um, kind of hill to be climbed um, around this. Um, and I don't really have the answers to that. Uh, but I do think, yeah, I think it's perhaps not I'm not as optimistic as I was, I, I suppose, this time, or well, not this time last year, but uh, over the summer. Sally, and the same question to you. Are, are you as pessimistic as, as Alison, or are you optimistic on, on that there will be societal changes will come after, after the pandemic? Yeah, I, I probably like Alison. I think, I, I think that I'm optimistic about some, you know, that, that there have been some shifts um I'm less optimistic about where we go more broadly because um I can see that there is you know there isn't in enough infrastructure being built to support other other modes other than driving fast enough um the you know the the difficulty um in in you know in terms of pushback is is huge uh, in, I mean, it is in, bigger in some. I, th- I think back, London has seen a bigger backlash than I've seen anywhere else in the UK. But I, there has been a backlash everywhere else. Um, but also, I just can see that you know people are going, getting in their cars, and people aren't using public transport, and that's a really worrying thing. And we start seeing you know drive-through cinemas advertised, and drive, everything's you know all us you know con- everything's going to be a drive-through, and that really worries me that we we're end, ending up going to kind of actually kind of support more driving rather than um, discouraging it through that but I mean I do think you know for for politicians there is opportunity here um, and you know the future's still you know to be decided written really they 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 do have opportunity we see even where we live huge numbers of people cycling one of my concerns about how we plan to support you know this kind of activity in the future is that we're not measuring any of this and, and we know that through um if we don't have the sort of data to to support change it can be more difficult to make those changes so so i'm going to come straight back to you on 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 the bridges because there's been a uh, newcastle has closed off uh two motorists not to pedestrians not to cyclists not to 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 scooter users etc but close off to motorists five bridges and then there's an awful lot of uh controversy as they always are on, on on these kind of things um but it does seem that touch wood that Newcastle is holding its nerve and, and is, is not reacting to the incredibly loud voices and including um, some um, potentially fraudulent voices in, in this particular um, semi-consultation. So, so what's happening with the bridges? And are you hopeful that, that those particular bridges will remain 
um, open to pedestrians and cyclists, but closed to motorists. Yeah, I think we are hopeful. Um, I mean, we, we really we don't know what what the decision is going to be yet. Um, but the reason I think we're hopeful is that they've they've kind of so far done everything that they said they would. They kind of come up with a report quite quickly after the after the sort of end of the consultation, and there's a decision I think that's going to be made in the summer. But they're talking about it, looking kind of looking quite carefully about how people respond to the consultation, and but also looking at other sort of other data, um, you know, in terms of tra- traffic on on main roads and, and air pollution, what have you. So um, I think it is it is important, and and also actually I think you know recognizing that while I think they had quite a good response to the consultation, it's probably not representative of the people who live in these places. And to go back to children, this is you know a big issue that we have that I think when we look at how many children are responding or being or even able to take part in these consultations it's very very tiny numbers so you know if we make the decision based on what you know and your your kind of I I think a recent um a recent um uh uh, transport policy consultation in the northeast has has just announced its findings and and you know the majority or not the majority but by far the biggest uh, group of people who had responded were white men who were around sort of in their 50s um and and it's really important that we make sure that when we're kind of thinking about transport we're, we're thinking much more widely than than that it's a good point so listen to children a bit more yeah ask children <laughs> physically ask them yeah and that that's difficult and obviously it's even been been more difficult in in the pandemic but um it, it and i say it's difficult in that um you know you know how, how do you access that how do you access you this is always the kind of question about how do you engage what what are kind of generally known as hard to reach groups but but i think it you know there are ways of doing that and i think that we probably don't spend make enough effort to do that so, Alison, let, let's let's talk about Sunrise Cycleway and potentially um, permanent changes m- might result. So, so give us a brief rundown of the changes that were made in your neck of the woods, this particular um, cycleway, whether it was well used, and and then it was dismantled. So, tell us about the dismantling of it and uh, and what happened there. But then also maybe discuss the the potential for a permanent. Uh, cycleway to to come out of this yeah i mean i think you know what we saw last summer was um yeah the creation of a a three mile five kilometer cycleway along the seafront from tynemouth to whitney bay running through color coats um all along um the the seafront um effectively removing one lane of traffic um the southbound lane which was replaced by a two-way cycle cycle lane Um, there was a bit of um, shifting and changing kind of in the process to accommodate particularly the needs of both um, fishing boats but also um, the volunteer life brigade um, who need access needed access kind of along the coast so there was a bit of shifting and changing to create access points Um, but largely what we had from July through to October if I've got my dates right um, was um, a a traffic-free cycleway right along the seafront it was extremely well used um, I'm, I can't remember off the top of my head the figures, but it was thousands of people um, daily peaking, obviously, at, at weekends and, and in the summer months. Um, and it was used by all sorts of different people, but particularly it was used by children, by families, um, by um, people on non-standard bikes, um, as well as people who were on road bikes, but perhaps would have travelled up and down the coast anyway. This bit of road forms 
part of the National Cycle Network Route 1, um, which is in ordinary times a shared path right along the seafront. It's quite a wide path at times, but it's often quite narrow. And in the context of both the summer and the pandemic, we see huge numbers of people trying to kind of make their way up and down the coast. And I guess what we're beginning to see after the cycleway was pulled out in October on the basis apparently of falling figures, but also tricky negotiations with other coastal users. Um, And, you know, the argument all along was that there would be far fewer people using this. But what we've seen is a consistent flow of people trying to walk and cycle along the coast and that that's picked up really dramatically in the last kind of month or so, that it's really quite difficult to cycle down what is now a shared path um, on the pavement. So we've been actively kind of pushing for and trying to kind of, you know, encourage the council to to, to move towards um, both kind of, I suppose, um, a short term solution and a longer term solution. And the council have committed to a longer term solution along the seafront. We're not sure how that will work. Um, Living Streets and North Tyneside have put forward a plan for what they think might work. Um, we're not sure what the council's looking at, what the council's ideas are, um, but a way of accommodating um different forms of traffic down the coast and creating space for walking and cycling. But we see that there's quite an urgent need for that um, in the short term as well. I have no idea what it's going to be like on the summer, during the summer on the seafront. Um, it's already heaving at weekends with very um, very difficult kind of to walk, let alone to walk and cycle on the, on the path. And there have been um, quite a lot of um, tweets and other kind of posts on social media over the last few months about the number of close passes that happen on um, the seafront road, on the road now, that most cyclists are back on the road. And of course, that um, excludes cyclists who aren't confident, it excludes children, and excludes um, families cycling with their children. So we've seen a real shift in, in, in the opportunities to cycle um, through the borough. And I think, you know, obviously, there was a lot of focus on this being a kind of sort of leisure route. But it often it also provided a really um, safe route between um, our our town centres between Whitley Bay, Cullercoats, and Tynemouth. Um, that so travelling for shopping, travelling to see friends and family um, when that's been possible, and that linked in then to these closures um, on North Shields Fishkey and on uh, Parkview in Whitley Bay. Um, so these places became, if you like, kind of destinations for people kind of shopping and eating and drinking, and they were connected um, by. Um, a, a cycleway, which made moving between these places much easier. Now, an awful lot of the chatter on on social media was was basically saying uh, those places which you just mentioned, oh, that they're, they're losing all their business, and that was obviously because of the pandemic. It was just that why people aren't going to shops, and yet that was the evidence that was very often cited. Um, would you say there was there was some people would say the opposite to that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's different pictures, I'd say, on the Fishkey and Parkview. My understanding is that almost all of the businesses, that's to say kind of um, the the food and retail businesses on the Fishkey were in favour of the closure and are are pushing, as far as I understand, for another closure this summer. Um, On Parkview, it was slightly more complicated, I think. Um, But I think, you know, what we haven't seen is, is the evidence that the council gathered. You know, they did record and report um, both traffic um, on the seafront, um, but also footfall and all sorts of other um, data from Parkview and from the Fishkey. And we don't have that data. Um, it hasn't been reported publicly. Um, so we don't really know what numbers were like. I mean, we can 
rely on anecdotal evidence, obviously. But what we also don't know, there's been no no systematic um, and clear kind of survey, as far as, as far as we understand, of the businesses on Parkview. We hear stories of people, you know, feeling kind of at risk and losing business, but we also hear stories of people for whom it was an amazing boon in terms of um, their sales, whether that was food shops, um, some of the clothes shops, um, some of the bars and cafes down there. So we don't know is the answer. And we don't have the evidence at the moment to make those decisions. And I think, um, you know, in contrast to to Newcastle, where there was a, a very widespread consultation, and we've already seen um, the initial results from that, we don't really have that information in North Tyneside yet. So Sally, again, we're going to be hyper local here. Um, uh, but in our particular uh, leafy suburb, uh, there has just recently appeared some protection for cyclists um, on some stretches of 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 road. So I'm assuming you welcome those kind of um, bits of infrastructure being installed. But do you think? And I, you kind of you did mention this before, and you said it's not coming quick enough. But do, how quickly do that would Newcastle City Council have to go to actually make th- these interventions actually physically work? Yeah, I think that it's been really great to see the temporary stuff. I think the difficulty with it is that we know this that when you when you're talking about um, temporary cycle lanes, you can't really deal with the junctions, and and so. I can understand a reluctance to to put in huge amounts of temporary stuff without a plan to make uh, to do something about the junctions. But I think that to some extent, you know, there are people who are such nervous cyclists that they will get off and cross the road at the junction and still use the protection. So I think there's probably a case for more temporary, um, and, you know, and, there, and we know that there are streets that are wide that are you know in fact it i i have personally suggested um to the council um you know shortly after this all started that they might want to think about focusing on on secondary schools looking at secondary schools which are main roads which have space uh, and putting in pop-up cycle lanes there because even even if they can't deal with the junctions you have huge numbers of kids spilling out of schools onto quite narrow pavements and they're already sort of jostling and people you know kids who are cycling can can end up on the road so you know thinking about it in those terms then with a plan to make those permanent in the future is probably you know those are quite good places to start um so that we've been led to believe they have funding to make the, the some of the pop-up stuff here permanent i don't know about some of the other stuff that's we're sort of waiting to see what we have a high strike street here which has some cycling some pedestrian um i think many of us feel you know who, who cycle feel that it would be really it's really important that, that that temporary pedestrian space kind of get becomes cycling space in the future um but i think that i'm, I'm not i don't think that's necessarily a plan that the council have so these things we're always kind of, I suppose, pushing pushing for more with, with the sort of recognition that if you want people to come and use high streets, you do need to make this space for cycling. We're seeing many, many more people cycling. And if you want them to come and stop at shops, you know, it's just it's not like when you come in the car and you bring your kids and you can get out a buggy. You're, if you've brought your kids on your bike, you you know, how do you then you know if you have a baby and a toddler and and you and shopping how do you manage that so we're seeing many more different types of 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 bike non-standard cycle now 
being used to, to with children and, and so we you know we do need to think about infrastructure for sort of cycling in a much more broader sense it needs to really get to, to right to the to destinations we need cycle parking all this all this other stuff so it's a bit of a, a big a leap on from thinking about your commuter routes and Alison if you asked a five-year-old if you asked a 15-year-old if you asked a 16-year-old you know what would they want from their streets you'd get us I'm assuming a, a certain answer if you then asked a 17-year-old, and that's the age, of course, in the UK where you get your driving license, that, and I'll, I'll consider, I think the, the United Nations consider um, a, a child until, I think, 18, isn't it? Um, so um, a child of 17 who's got a driving license will all of a sudden have a very different view of of what should perhaps, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming here, of, of the transport priorities. So how do you make... Uh, either that connection or that disconnection from as soon as you get your driving license, your perspectives on this change completely? Well, I suppose there's two things. Is One is that having your driving license, you know, doesn't mean you can afford to take lessons, um, pass a test, buy a car. So there's still enormous inequalities which exist um, even after 17. That is a relatively small number of children, um, young people, who would be able to buy a car and use that as their primary mode of transport. Um, there are huge costs associated um, with driving, and unless those can be absorbed by you or your family, then you're still it's still not going to be your primary mode of transport for quite some time. And the other thing is, I suppose, that you know that, that kind of rite of passage of kind of passing your test and getting a car when you turn 17 or kind of as soon as you possibly can afterwards is a result of the, the way in which we hold the car up in, in popular culture. And if, you know... If we can make changes now, which mean that actually children see, you know, young children now see that, you know, bikes or feet give them more freedom to move around their local communities safely with their friends. You know, OK, you can give your friends a lift in a car, um, but, you know, getting around, hanging around. I mean, you know, I guess this is the thing about asking children and young people. And like Sally said, you know, there are now numerous ways in which people have tried and tested talking to children and young people about what they want from their streets, what they want from their cities, what they want from their public transport systems. It, it's not, you know, there, there's just dozens and dozens of studies that have done this now. And it's not beyond the realms of possibility for councils like Newcastle or North Tyneside to actually consult children and young people and to ask them. And, yeah, there will be much the needs of an 11 year old will be very different to the needs of a 17 year old. And there's been a lot of stuff recently um, about how how little, for example, um, teenage girls are accounted for in public space and how they might move about public space um, and how they might, um, you know, choose to travel, choose to meet their friends and so on. So I think it is about asking um, children and young people um, asking them what might make a difference to them making choices to buy a car or to take driving lessons um, or, in fact, just to have a bike. And, you know, you see I see I see young um, people, I don't know, 15, 16, 17 year olds cycling all over North Tyneside. They're often cycling on the pavement because it's the only place that they could safely cycle. But it's clearly how young people do get around. It's how I got around as a young person. Um, it's one of those, you know, taking your test at 17, buying a car is one route, but it's not the only route. And it's a privileged route. Mm. Well, thank you both of you for uh, taking the time today to 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 chat with me. Uh, to end, could you please uh, tell everybody uh, 
how they can find you on social media and perhaps any links to your academic or any other hats you, you, you like to, to put there. I know Sally might give a, a cycling campaign hat there. So first of all, Alison, g- g- give us your social media and any other links. So I'm on Twitter as at Alison Stenning, quite easy to find there. Um, and I, in terms of my, my academic role, it's very easy to, to search for me at Newcastle University. I'm in um, geography at the university and you'll find me if you if you search for me. Um, I also have, yeah, kind of, I guess, two activist hats. I run Play Meet Street North Tyneside, hope coordinate street closures for play in North Tyneside. Again, um, that's at Play Meet Street on uh, Twitter. Um, and you can find us by uh, searching. We're on Facebook as well as we have a, a, a basic website. Um, and I'm also involved in Living Street the North Tyneside. I'm off the top of my head. I can't remember what their Twitter handle is. But again, if you search for that, you'll find both a, um, a website um, and a twi- Twitter handle and a Facebook page. Thank you. And Sally? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, I'm also on Twitter at Sal A. Watson. Um, I can be also found in Newcastle University in the School of Architecture, Planning and Landscape. I Additionally, I, I chair the Newcastle Cycling Campaign um, we have a Twitter, which is at New Cycling. Uh, and we also have, you can find through that, we have a, a, a Facebook and a, and a website as well. Thanks to Alison Stenning and Sally Watson there. And thanks to you for listening to the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Show notes and more can be found on the-spokesmen.com. But as always, meanwhile, get out there and run.